Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to owner of Athletic Lab and Director of Performance at North Carolina Courage, Mike Young. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So a long overdue part two with Mike Young, who featured in episode three of the podcast. So Mike was very kind to say yes to me and come on the podcast in episode three, nearly five years ago. So eternally grateful for his um, for his contribution to the podcast in the early days and now in the um, latter years of the podcast. So in this episode, we discuss the development of Athletic Lab and the intricacies of setting up a business and going through a renovation and a creation of a new facility and how Mike goes about that, structuring where he wants certain pieces of equipment, what the flow he the flow he wants to create, which is anyone that's ever had a dream of setting up their own gym, um, definitely can live through Mike in this episode because it was a really interesting insight into the intricacies of, of, that, of that process. Then we discuss um, everything to do with eccentric training and programming eccentric focused exercises into the wider wider plan. So really interesting insight there. And then we discuss obviously been Mike uh, speed training and how that differs between sprinters and um, team sport athletes. So really interesting chat with Mike. Long overdue part two, which I'm sure you'll love. Eccentric training is starting to get the recognition that it deserves as a key focal point for sport performance coaches. I think it's critically, critically important. In fact, I would say if any of the muscle activity actions and things that we might develop uh, in terms of physical capacity, I would put it right up there at the very top. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Eccentric. So Eccentric are a Sweden-based company and is a developer of the groundbreaking flywheel training tools, the K-Box and the K-Pulley. And since its founding in 2011, Eccentric products have gone on to be used in Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, NFL, NBA, a number of uh, other leagues around the world, including the EPL, where Leicester City, Chelsea and Arsenal are among their customers. So just to give you a brief bit of background on flywheel training with the K-Box and the K-Pulley. So backed up by multiple academic research studies, it's been shown to increase strength training effectiveness by not relying on gravity, but the inertia of the flywheel. So that improves the efficiency of training programs while lowering the total cost as compared to traditional training methods. So if you'd like to know more about Eccentric's products, the K-Box and the K-Pulley, head over to their website, which is eccentric.com, and that's spelled E-X-X-E-N-T-R-I-C.com, or follow them on Twitter or on Instagram at go underscore eccentric. Also sponsoring the Pasty Performance Podcast today is First Beat, who are the leading provider in physiological analytics for sports. So just give you a bit of background on First Beat. So they were founded in Finland in 2002, and their First Beat play monitoring platform transforms heartbeat data into personalized information on training loads, intensity, fitness testing, uh, performance readiness, stress recovery, sleep quality, etc., all in one place. So Firstbeat currently have 800 teams worldwide who are using their system and can include Golden State Warriors, the reigning NBA champions, English Premiership Rugby champion Saracens and Manchester City as their clients. So in terms of the system, Firstbeat offers real-time monitoring of metrics like Trimp to give you the physiological information to optimize performance, reduce injuries, fast-track player development, etc. And one real differentiator of First Beat Sports is their heart rate variability functionality to be able to uh, provide real insights and guidance on the recovery process. So if you were looking to get a little bit more information about First Beat Sports, you can head over to their website, which is firstbeat.com, or follow them on Twitter at firstbeatinfo. So without further ado, over to the episode with Mike Young. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So long overdue part two with Mike Young. So welcome to the podcast, Mike. 
Thank you, Rob, for having me on again. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. It's nearly it's nearly five years in the making. There's a part two after you've been kindly, very kindly, at number three, um, said yes right at the start. So, yeah, long overdue. But any anyone that doesn't know who you are, I guess probably the best place to start would be what's changed over the last um, four or five years. I think, I don't know if you were, I think you must have left the white caps at that point. Would you be still there at Five years ago, yeah, I, four years ago? I think I was uh, had just left uh, physically from Vancouver. I was, I believe I was still working on a consultancy with them uh, when I had returned and had just come back to Athletic Lab. Uh, since that time span, I've uh, started working with North Carolina FC, which is a club that was under a different name that I had worked with in the past, but uh, picked them back up again when I returned. A local club where I'm the director of uh, performance for them, as well as their women's pro team, the North Carolina Courage. We've just kind of recently merged and added the women's club as well as a youth club. It's the biggest soccer club, I believe, in the world from youth to pro level uh, on the men's and women's side. There's 14,000 kids in the club. So we've got, uh, yeah, it's not all, not all academy uh, type of deal. There's some rec kids in there as well, but it's, it's a huge, it's a massive deal. And, uh, the, the women's side in particular, the Courage, has been very, very successful this year. So I've been working with them and just recently added a, a, another facility. So we're have now opened a second facility as of about 10 days ago and uh, looking to move into an even larger one uh, about 10, 11 months from now. So it's uh, been a busy last year. So is that third one going to replace one of them or is that going to become a third? That's right. So the third one will replace our existing one, what we call yep. our uh, headquarters, and uh, it'll be about 70% larger, uh, have a expanded sports science, pretty incredible uh, in, indoor turf and track area. Uh, and, and it'll actually be situated in a pretty cool area where we are right next to or in, immersed in what I would call a sports mall. So the biggest uh, two, two professional teams will be training there. Hopefully there are not only our neighbors, but our, our clients, uh, as well as some of the bigger uh, sports clubs at the youth level will be in that same area. It's all going to be built out in the next, uh, finished up in the next eight months or so. We'll look, we'll look to move in in about 10. Nice. So what square footage are you in now in the, in the headquarters? So we're at 16,000 square feet right now, and we have uh, about 9,000 of which uh, maybe 10 is the training hall. The rest is office and we have an orthopedic group and a chiropractic group in with us. And then the new place will be uh, about 16,000 square feet of training hall. And we'll still bring along the chiropractor and orthopedic and the sports science and locker rooms and everything else. So all told, I believe we'll be around uh, 27,000 square feet. So it should be pretty, pretty oh, wow. massive. We'll have uh 65-meter four-lane sprint track and a turf area big enough to run an entire team through a yo-yo uh, pretty comfortably uh, and yep. uh, several several different weight room areas or strength areas and, uh, and a metabolic conditioning area where we could kind of run teams and larger groups pretty efficiently. That might be an interesting little place to start, actually. How, how did you, when you were sort, sorting out this, this new facility, and I suppose the second one as well before we get into the third, what was the thought process behind what goes where and what was the decision-making like around that, getting the right flow and getting the right feel of it? What was the process you went through for that? That might be quite interesting. No, it's always – I love doing that kind of stuff. I've designed yeah, a couple of facilities both for ourselves as well as for, for others in terms of a consultancy basis. And it really is a, a pretty interesting little design project. Uh, both – got to factor in several different things here. First and foremost of which is you decide whether you're uh, a business that's putting profit first or putting the training experience first because – if we were to put profit first, the facility might look a little bit different than how we're actually looking to do it. You know, it would look a little bit more like a health club, to be quite frank. Uh, free space, free open space is hard to monetize, but it's an absolute necessity if you're training athletes. And then you start to worry about things like safety and workflow. So safety should obviously become a huge priority. Where do things like 
exit doors come into play. Where are where does where's the track relative to the weight room? Because people could be running through an area or passing through an area to get to the bathroom, and meanwhile people are dropping weights. So these are things we have to be concerned about. What's the spacing of the squat rack relative to a wall or what have you? Um, and, and there are there are some guidelines out there from the NSCA and other governing bodies, and we adhere to those or ex- exceed them. Um, the workflow, I think, is one of the more uh, overlooked areas of, of facility design. I mean, our workflow is set up so that we could manage five larger groups at the same time. Uh, we could have an entire group on the track. It, as I say, it's four lanes, 70 meters. We could have an entire group on the turf, including doing some some strength work or mobility or what have you. Uh, it's going to be about 4,500 square feet. And then we will have three completely separate weight rooms um, and one metabolic conditioning area. So the weight rooms are are separated both visually and in terms of the equipment type. So certain weight rooms will be a little bit more geared towards different aspects of training. We'll have a weight room that is a you know, very much designed for Olympic weightlifting, 10, 10 embedded weightlifting platforms, eight feet by eight feet, all our high-end bars, highest-end bumpers in that section. Uh, but that will also double up because they're embedded platforms. So if we needed to extend the turf into flat ground running, we could actually take our turf out so that the turf itself uh, or the, the straight of the turf, what someone could run onto without being impeded, would be as long as about uh, 50 meters or so. Uh, they would have to obviously run onto the rubber, but because the, the weightlifting area are embedded platforms, it would be a non-issue. Uh, and then just figuring out where things like the locker room are, uh, planning out your sessions in advance. So how, where do we do, where are we going to do our warmups, our mobility? Where are we going to foam roll? Do we go from strength to speed or speed to strength? Uh, planning out how these different things will kind of piece together is essentially a puzzle we want to make sure that we're maximizing the use of equipment, maximizing the use of floor space. Uh, so these are all kinds of things that is just a constant juggling act, really, because uh, you have so many different moving parts. And then at the end of the day, you also have to future-proof the facility. Uh, you know, we're moving into this gigantic facility, at least for us, and we need to make sure that it's going to work for us five, ten years down the line when we've hopefully had the type of growth that we've had in the past. So. If we continue that growth, uh, we need to be prepared for more athletes to, to be in there. We need to be prepared to think about how we add racks or position uh, different pieces of equipment, that kind of thing. So it's the workflow, making sure that we can get the work done without being impeded, making sure that the coach can coach without being interrupted. Those are all things that I'm always taking into account anytime I'm trying to design design a facility or the layout or even just the small things like maximizing the the use of space. Where do we hang certain things? Can we use vertical space rather than flat horizontal floor space, which is always at a premium? So right, even right now in our current facility, we've pretty much maxed out the amount of equipment we can put in. And what right now, what I've lately been purchasing is effectively floor space. So optimizing the efficiency of the actual square footage and footprint of the equipment that we have. So can we store things on the wall? Can I can I buy things that are foldable or things that can hang rather than things that take up a large uh, area on the ground? You know, stackable plyometric boxes would be, a, would be a prime example or folding sleds would be another example or finding ways to configure your racks so that you can have them hold bands and chains and uh, weight belts rather than having to have them sloppily hung on the ground or the floor or whatever, uh, or even on the wall. So we're, we're really trying to maximize as much space as we can. We're paying for every square foot that we have. So the, the best we can make use of that and open up the free space to be able to use it for speed, agility, athletic type training, the better off we're going to be. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So what, what's, the, what's the percentage of athletes compared to general pop that you have at Athletic Lab? Uh, we have a really interesting mix, and I actually love it exactly how we are. There's a couple reasons for that. Uh, but the, the ratio is about 25% of the athletes, 25% of the clients that we have are professional athletes. About another 
20, 25%, depending on the type of time of year. Summertime is obviously quite a bit higher. Uh, the rest of the year, a little bit lower. Those would be high school and developmental level athletes. We actually have a long-term athlete development pipeline that could conceivably take someone from youth developmental athlete, essentially physical education, all the way up through very planned, progressive, elite level training. And then the rest are general population. So at any given point in time, it's probably about 55% are athletes and uh, 50 to 55% and 45, 50% are general population. Our general population are a little bit different uh, than your typical fitness facility in that we've got general population guys that can uh, you know, squat 200 kilos and uh, clean 150 kilos and things like that. Some of them are <laughs> competing, competing in Olympic weightlifting or competing in triathlons. We've had a guy that's run a 200 mile ultra marathon. So we've got a lot of kind of crazy gen pop type people. Uh, but we also have your, your average Joes. And one of the things that I appreciate most about working in the business that I do is that these people work out right right alongside each other. They train right alongside each other. And really the prerequisite for training here is not athletic ability or how many medals or championships you've won, but do you want to get better? And are you goal oriented? If, if the answer to those questions is yes, then you're a fine fit, even if you've never done any physical activity for, for your whole life. And we certainly have people like that. Uh, sometimes people are shocked when they come in and they'll see people who are, you know, struggle to do their first jumping jack even. Uh, but we also have plenty of heavy hitters that can both general population as well as the professional athletes that can do some amazing things. So it's a really cool mix. Everybody's kind of supportive of each other. They work out, train right alongside each other. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's not too many places uh, in the U.S. that are that are like that, maybe in the world. But we have a pretty, pretty interesting mix. Sometimes there's, you know, our gen pop people outperform our professional athletes in gym related activities, you know, obviously if it were, if it were sport related activities, they might not hold their own, but in the gym related activities, they can oftentimes, uh, you know, out, uh, outmatch the, the pros. So last question on the facility before we move on, how many, how many staff have you got now and how's that developed over the last couple of years? So we've got, uh, coaching staff. We have 10, uh, we have a couple admin people as well. Uh, and we have someone who's working on, our expansion internationally. Uh, and then we have an assistant director for research. So we've got all told about 14 people. We're in need of one or two more right now. Uh, the, our, our expansion into a new facility, while it is semi-local, it's about 20 minutes away from our existing place. Uh, it is leaving us a stretch to, to say the least. Um, so we're, you know, we have a pretty strict path pathway to, to, uh, being coached here, being a coach here is basically everyone comes through our mentorship is, is effectively what it looks like. And then we have some hard line requirements. And then obviously, uh, like most good places that have a good culture, you have to be a, a good human being and a good get along well with the rest of the staff. So, uh, our mentorship program here is 400 hours. It's unpaid. Uh, it's pretty immersive, mixture of academic and hands-on learning experience. So, you know, we can kind of pick and choose what we want out of that. We can't always take everyone that we would like, but uh, we really do get to see, uh, develop some pretty high-level coaches, I think, and then see what they're like actually uh, at work. So right now we're at about 10 coaches. I suspect by the time we move into our new facility, we'll need about 12 Nice. Good work. So just to, just to move on, um, and it'd be criminal for me not to chat about, about speed when it comes to when, when I asked to come on the podcast. So I had to, I had James Wilde on a couple of episodes ago and we chatted about profiling for, or James chatted about profiling for quite a, a chunk of that. And we discussed, um, uh, hip extensor profile, reactive strength index, uh, force velocity profiles in sprints and squat jumps. But what I wanted to chat to you about was 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 going to be based around that, but flip it on its head and maybe people out there who are in a um, maybe a setting more like yourself, um, maybe a, 
one that doesn't have as, as great facility um, and maybe on their own with limited tech. So is there any way or any advice you would give them people and recommendations that want to profile their athletes and get to know where they should be spending the limited time that they've got with them, but doesn't necessarily um, cost them a bunch of time and a bunch of money? Yeah, I think there's a handful of tests you can do. Some of these are not anything that are novel to myself. Uh, we do we do some jump profiling using uh, two or three different types of jump testing from a vertical jump, uh, counter movement jump, a step-in jump, and then we have increasingly been using RSI. And from those, you can get a pretty interesting you know, force velocity profiles across the athlete seeing if there's uh, eccentric, concentric eccentric deficits there. Uh, we're obviously doing your, your very simple weight room tests. I think those can be, can be useful uh, in terms of determining what an athlete needs uh, relative to their force and rate of force development profile. And then I think when we, when we look at creating a profile for speed, ultimately the closest test, the most direct examination of what you can look at is, is an actual speed profile. So simply taking splits, uh, accurate splits for the athlete while they're sprinting can be very insightful because it can give you an indication of what they're most effective at, whether that's acceleration or top speed or transition. Uh, and then once you have that information, you can then make uh Put it into context and say why are they struggling in this aspect of their of their sprint performance is it because of uh, maximum strength deficit is it because they lack leg stiffness is it because they have poor mechanics uh, and then then you can actualize a change based off of what you're seeing so they're a really direct measurement while it's nice to kind of pull out force platforms not everybody has those or not everybody has um you know, EMG or whatever, you can do some pretty effective profiling just by looking at sprint testing. And Fusion Sport has actually tried to take that uh, and actually quantify it by doing a force velocity profile on 10 meter splits. But it's it's really something that a coach could do himself. Uh, just put the 10 meter splits into an Excel file, and you'll you'll be able to see how someone compares to both normative data as well as as well as uh you know that that person's longitudinal success or longitudinal history um so you know sprint tests are always really critical for us jump tests are something that i do about every four weeks uh, with my athletes rsi is something i do almost every week with my higher level track and field athletes uh, both as a as a readiness type of indicator but also to track it longitudinally to make sure we're prepared for the, the physical demands of top speed. Um, you know, we have, we've just kind of come into starting to use some force platforms. Um, so we're able to do a little bit more of the force velocity profiling and the um, rate of force production profiling. But at the end of the day, I think it really, if you're looking for predictors or profiling for speed, you've got to look at speed. You got to go right to the source. So, right to the source and then backtrack rather than try to extrapolate forward. Mm -hmm. So I'd, I'd like to use a, a bit of a hypothetical athlete. So you've done your, you've done your 10 meter splits, you identified, and we'll put, do a couple of these if that's all right. You identified that it's the acceleration phase that is, that needs work. What's the next step from there? So I think then you put it into context. I think your first question is how, how efficient are they in their first couple steps? I think most coaches that have worked with athletes recognize that those first couple steps can really make or break a, a short acceleration. And you could have the horsepower, but if your mechanics is quite poor, it, it will really be uh, pretty negatively impactful on performance. So if the mechanics were just absolutely atrocious, that'd be my first place to look really. Uh, and, you know, I don't think they necessarily have to be perfect, but if you're seeing someone just spinning their wheels and turning over really quickly or butt kicking right away or really poor postural alignment, those are massive red flags in my opinion. And you fix those and you can see huge improvements. It's it's not uncommon for us to 
just makes relatively simple mechanical changes and see uh, improvements in the 10 meter time of uh, you know almost 0.2 of a second, which is ridiculous. We haven't actually trained them physically to be any more powerful, but what we've just done is made some very small mechanical changes to make sure that their their power is actualized in sprint speed. If they were even in the ballpark on mechanics, then I would look at other things. What's related to acceleration? Well, we know maximal maximal strength is very closely tied to the speed on those first 10, maybe even up to 25 meters or so. So how is how does max strength relative to body weight compare? Uh, we want to have someone who is really strong at a relatively low body weight. Uh, if, if they're not even in the ballpark of, say, a, a two times body weight squat or whatever your equivalent exercise of choice would be, then I would start to look at that. You know, if they're great at, if they're great at top speed, but they have really poor max strength values, that would be a, another low-hanging fruit for me or a big red flag. I'd, I'd kind of look at that and say, hey, this is something we need to address. This is why this is potentially an issue. Um, and then, you know, again, looking at, looking at uh, low end power type indicators like a standing vertical, um, which, which isn't going to have a ton of carryover to top speed, but would certainly have quite a bit of an effect on first 10 meters, say. So standing vertical, standing long jump, those kinds of tests. Uh, can they express power when their body is starting from a stationary static position? Uh, being able to overcome your own inertia is, is a physical quality that, that can be developed unto itself. So, uh, you know, if somebody's looking at acceleration, those are my big, big three, uh, you know, check mechanics, check, a, check a maximal strength deficit or deficiency, and then look at, look at low end power. You know, it could just be the guys that you know, complete dud altogether. I've seen guys have, have two, <laughs> two of the three, two of the three, uh, be pretty solid. And then one of them is one of them is trash. And, you know, you, you can only go so far with that. Um, everybody can be improved, obviously, but, uh, you know, you actually, you actually want to figure out what needs to be addressed. With the, with the change in mechanics, and this is something that we probably didn't delve into too much with James, but from your experience, the change in mechanics, them, them slight changes, how long does it take? I know this is a horrendously general question, but, how long does it take to actually transfer into improved sprint times? Can that can be quite a lag there when you're changing mechanics? Yeah, so I have seen in several cases where you get an immediate improvement on performance. And I've been trackside where Ralph Mann, the USA track and field bio, sport biomechanist for sprints, has made changes to athletes, elite, elite athletes, highly trained athletes, and immediately they're better. Now, most of the time, I don't think it's reasonable to expect for that to be the case, but I, I have regularly seen that occur, where we can make a relatively minor change and the person is instantly running faster. Now, sometimes that's not going to happen and it shouldn't always be the expectation that it does, but when you're making a, a change in mechanics, especially on those first couple steps, those first couple steps are so impactful in terms of how fast you run that you can make these relatively small changes and still see improvements on performance, even when the person has not actually trained in those positions before because they're so inefficient otherwise. Uh, when it comes to top end speed, I think things are a little bit more nuanced. You, I, I've tried to make changes in top end speed and it might take you know, several, several weeks to months for them to actually see the benefits of that. Um, and then really what we are trying to do, regardless of whether it's acceleration or top speed is make those changes, coach them to the point where they can do it automatically in an activity like sprinting, where we, re it is occurring so, so fast that it has to be reflexive in nature. You know, it should have very little cognitive involvement in it. Uh, the real, the real performance improvements will occur when those movements 
become automatic rather than something that the person has to consciously think about and volitionally affect. Uh, so we need to practice it enough to, to where the person can do that. But even then, I've still seen people see improvements almost right away. And I'm not just talking about some hocus pocus that looks better, or that you look faster. I've seen it on timing gates time and time again. Uh, and, you know, we've run speed camps in the past where we'll just bring in athletes from team sports and we'll improve, just show them how to run. And it's very common for us to improve. I believe our 30 meter improvement average on a six week speed camp is uh, almost 0.4 of a second, which is, you know, light years difference from uh, on a distance that short. 0.4 of a second is someone literally going from being a, a slow donkey to a racehorse. Uh, so, you know, that's come for 12 weeks. Yeah, yeah, six, six, six weeks or so. So, uh, you know, obviously you're not going to get that in someone who's highly trained, but if you take bad mechanics and, and just make them acceptable, you'll see improve, pretty significant improvements. So just going to take a very quick break in the podcast with Mike. So I hope you're enjoying part one. So in part two, we discuss more on eccentric training and also uh, more on speed training with sprinters versus team sport athletes. But just before we do, I want to say a big thanks to Val Performance and Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today. So Val Performance are the guys behind the Nordboard, Groin Bar, Human Track, and have recently joined forces with Forstex. So if you do want to know any more about any of them four products, visit valperformance.com and you'll find more information there about each one of those. I'm sure you have heard of at least a couple of them, but if you are interested in getting to know any more about their products, please visit the website and follow them on Twitter at Val Performance. Also big thanks to Black Box Fitness, who are a independent uh, performance gym manufacturer based in Belfast in Northern Ireland. So they have recently shipped products to Dubai, to America, to over here in, in England, in the UK. So a really great set of guys. Um, and whether you're looking to build out your current facility with anything from barbells to plates to kettlebells, whatever it may be, or you're looking for a complete gym renovation, make sure you check out the guys at Black Box. And they can be found on their website at blkboxfitness.com or on Twitter and uh, Instagram at blkboxfitness. So thanks to Vald and Black Box for sponsoring this episode today and over to part two with Mike. So with, with the majority of people listening to this podcast, um, working in team sports and just going back to the whole um, coaching and teaching mechanics, what is the... Is there any recommendations, again, looking for recommendations from you to enable these coaches who are working in team sports, who are working with large groups, to really get the detail out of them, the limited time that they have in trying to do some, to, to teach something that's um, so detailed? So is there any recommendations that you'd have for them guys working in team sports for, for, for that kind of um, aspect of coaching? Yeah, it's, it's pretty tricky. I mean, I, I run a speed session once a week, a dedicated speed session once a week with my two teams. And the reality is I'm given about 10 minutes to run them through a speed session. So it's nowhere close to the ideal that I get with my track and field athletes. Uh, you know, I get what would be considered from a classic standpoint, too short of a warm-up of 10 minutes and then too short to actually do anything in terms of the speed work of an additional 10 minutes. But uh, how do we get them faster? Well, in, in terms of uh, getting someone faster, even before we get to mechanics, my experience is work in working in team sports is simply you just got to make them run faster. That's step one. I, I see a lot of athletes not giving full intent. Uh, and if you're not giving full intent, it doesn't matter if your mechanics are great or, or uh, terrible, you're not going to get faster. You've got to reach a certain threshold uh, approaching full speed that, uh, it, you know, if you're not doing that, it doesn't matter how much you correct mechanics. So that's almost like a, a little rant. Just make sure if you're working in team sports, just prescribing the workout of, you know, six times 30 meters. Uh, is not does not necessarily mean it is a sprint session. 
for it to be a sprint session, you have to actually give full intent. Once we've gotten over that barrier, then things like mechanics and rest times and uh, uh, total volumes and other things kind of come into play. In terms of mechanics, typically in my scenarios, and I think this is similar to a lot of other coaches that work in team sports, is you don't have a lot of time and you're working with 20 to maybe 30 athletes at the same time. The ability to do small nuance changes is just not possible. So what I'll try to do is basically give a big rocks type of lecture at the beginning. Very short, very concise, and to the point. This is what I want to do. Um, this is what I need to see. Now that's only going to work with about you know 50 to 70 percent of the group. It seems some people have bad habits that they've developed over their lifetime. Other people weren't listening to you, and a myriad of other problems. So how do we get through to those other people? Well, I try to make it practices as idiot proof as possible. So if we can coach without coaching, that's the best. Thing that we could possibly do. I don't. Po I can't possibly have the time to fix every single athlete, 30, 20, 30 athletes in a 10 minute block to run, you know, several, several sprints and allow sufficient amount of recovery. It's just not going to happen. So how do I create a, a practice environment where they do things right, even in spite of themselves sometimes? So pulling out things like resisted runs or putting them in different positions on the ground or different positions at, at the start will almost foolproof the sprint activity to where it's very difficult for them to do it incorrectly. And then the hope would be that over time, those movements, which we are trying to make efficient under somewhat contrived environmental constraints, if we can remove those and constraints, hopefully they will carry over to more real world and applicable examples like flat ground running or out of reaction or off the ball or whatever it would be. We obviously have to blend those, but I don't think there's an expectation for them to occur in those more chaotic environments if they're not occurring in a constrained environment. So make sure they can do it right in a kind of closed environment where things are real simple and they can focus on the task at hand, uh, remove environmental constraints to make it slightly more challenging, and then uh, make it as idiot proof as possible. So, you know, obviously progress it to things where they are on the ball or they are coming off of a change of direction. But you have to be really efficient with your time. You have to be really efficient with your cues and your instructions because at least for the coaches out there who are in a situation similar to mine, uh, you just simply don't have the time to work on an individual basis with a lot of athletes. So with that in mind, and that brings me back to a, a conversation I had uh, with Derek Hansen about microdosing. Is that Does that fit in with this and your thoughts around getting speed sessions into, I'm a, I'm a, I guess we're talking about scheduling now, but getting speed sessions into the into busy schedules? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we, for us, with my teams, speed is, speed. doing speed once a week is non-negotiable. We're going to do it no matter what, at least once a week. The variables there are how much, what's the total volume, what's the total distance of the runs, do I want to incorporate repeat sprintability, do I want it to just be acceleration, that kind of thing. Um, and sometimes we are doing what Derek would call microdosing, where it, by track and field terminology, it's basically zero, you know, not zero, but it's it's very low loading. Uh, for these team sport athletes, though, that rarely see 100% maximum speeds, it is more than enough of a training stimulus to not only keep them safe and robust, but also to move the needle forward in terms of their sprint speed. So typically, we'll do relatively low volumes uh, before matches uh, or during heavy heavy load periods of the year or heavy travel periods of the year, but we'll still get it in. You know, maybe as maybe as little as 100 to 120 meters of total sprint volume. If we're lucky enough to have a little bit of a break, then we might do a little bit more. So maybe as much as 200 meters or so of of uh, sprint volume, say five times 40 out of a change of direction or something like that, giving them an opportunity to hit top speed, giving them a little bit more rest. Uh, but if it's a more dense period of our, our comp competitive schedule, that might look like something uh, like six times 20 or something something shorter distance, maybe 
perhaps shorter recoveries, that kind of thing, lower total volumes. Uh, we do microdose elsewhere, like in terms of our plyometrics and our, uh, our strength sometimes. We just try to get, there's a couple things that we try to get in all year long with a relatively constant frequency. And strength is one of them, speed is one of them. Um, and sometimes we will budge on the dose. So we'll lower the total volumes and the time commitments necessary to do it but we rarely budge on the fact that we're going to do it. Uh, I see a lot of teams just basically drop out high intensity loading during uh, high periods of match density or travel or what have you. And I think that's a, that's a huge mistake. I think you need to keep that, keep the frequency high and keep the intensity high uh, volume. You can, you can play around with a little bit, but you can't mess around with frequency or intensity when it comes to some of those more intense activities. So with with plyos there, you mentioned uh, microdosing. What what would the kind of minimum dose that you would do in a in a um, in a high activity period? So you got loads of games, you got a you know busy schedule. So I I actually try to incorporate plyometrics with my speed with with my team sport athletes. I think there's a great efficiency of time there. So we might actually do something like some plyometric activity into a sprint, whether that's a lateral plyometric or something vertically oriented into a sprint. Uh, sometimes it might be a sprint into, say, a jump header, a mock jump header, and then you turn, land, and sprint. So the, that's plyometric volume, uh, I think, that needs to be accounted for, needs to be addressed. We, we rarely will do specific plyometric workouts, dedicated plyometric workouts, but it does get it does get incorporated into both our weight room sessions as well as our speed sessions with a fairly regular basis. Uh, I follow the same progression regardless of uh, the athlete or the sport. Some, some athletes don't get to the end, end stages of my progression. Uh, I try to incorporate low-level plyometrics all the time, especially with soccer players and even more so with my female soccer players because their likelihood of uh, injuries, ACL, MCL, PCL, is so high. So women in particular need to be able to land and uh, handle the the forces at impact, need to be able to be mechanically, uh, mechanically avoid excessive valgus. Uh, so we'll, we incorporate low-level plyometrics even in the warm-ups on a probably two to three times per week basis. And, but then the more heavy hitter plyometrics, I save those typically for some type of incorporation into our strength session in the gym or into our speed session on the pitch. Cool. So just to move on a little bit, um, take a left turn and just discuss something that you've uh, spoke a lot about and, and, and written a lot about as well, and that's eccentric training. You just want to give us a little bit of a, kind of set the scene for us and give us a bit of a lesson why that might fit into your program and what some of the kind of benefits that that may bring as a, as a training modality. Sure. So I think eccentric training is starting to get the recognition that it deserves as uh, a key focal point for sport performance coaches. Uh, I think a lot of coaches are still missing the boat a little bit on how to train it. Um, and how to reach stimulus threshold. There's many are still at the very low end side of that progression, but uh, I think it's critically, critically important. And in fact, I would say if any of the muscle activity actions and things that we might develop uh, in terms of physical capacity, I would put it right up there at the very top. And the reason for that is this, most sports occur, the limiter for most sports and the ability to produce power quickly is related to our eccentric force generating capacity. Yet what, how we typically develop physical capacities as an S&C coach is in the weight room. Well, the weight room is very concentrically focused. And even further complicating that matter is the fact that it's not only concentrically focused, but when we talk about East concentric strength or the strength that we develop in the weight room, we're typically referring to concentric strength in our strongest ranges of motion, which would be the greatest points of flexion typically. Now, in the athletic realm, most of the action occurs at much different ranges of motion 
with a different contraction type, either some form of isometric contraction of the muscle and a lengthening of the tendon, meaning there is a uh, musculotendinous unit is going through an eccentric action, but the muscle is actually trying to isometrically contract, or we're actually seeing an eccentric contraction of the muscle. It's still not super well understood, but either way, isometric and eccentric muscular contractions are really, really critical. So we need to somewhat bridge the gap between the stuff that we might classically do in the weight room, which is very concentrically focused and concentrically focused at our weakest range of motion to the muscle actions and the ranges of motion that occur in sport, which are at much greater points of extension typically and under much higher rate of force development demands, much higher eccentric demands. So most people, when they will train eccentric capacity, they think, oh, I'm just going to lower this weight slowly. And that's only the start of a progression in my mind. Uh, e our eccentric capacities are as much as 100 and as little as 120 to as much as 200% as great as our concentric capacities, depending on the research literature you look at. So the weight room concentrically focused weakest range of motion work is really shortchanging us in terms of reaching stimulus threshold to develop the physical capacities necessary to adapt uh, to a higher eccentric overload. So we need to do fast, overloaded eccentrics. Now, the problem is that we can't just start with that type of thing because it's so physically demanding, whether that's the amount of weight that you put on your back or the height of the box that you would need to fall from to achieve that level. So we need to go through those progressions of slower, sub-maximally loaded eccentrics, but we also need to progress that out to where we're doing really heavily loaded activities, whether that's an actual physical load on our back or a, a really high ground, ground reaction force due to a, a very uh, impact, a lot of impact at landing. And, and we, should, we need to challenge the time in which the person is producing force. So none of these long, slow eccentrics, but a really fast eccentric, almost a shock type of loading under an extremely high load is what we really want to try to progress to. Not everyone is going to have the time to be able to dedicate to get themselves to that full end point of eccentric focus training. But I think we need to start thinking about eccentric training as more than just slow sub maximal uh, weight room work. You know, if it, if it is, if we're using a weight, say, that we could actually move concentrically, right? So if we put 80% on our back, 80% of our back squat on our back and do slow eccentric squats, well, the, there's a pretty significant problem there. That 80% represents 80% of my concentric strength in the weakest range of my motion. So... I would venture to guess that it's actually about our eccentric strength in it, it's about uh, 60 70 percent in that weakest range of motion and at our strongest range of motion it's probably 50 percent so we're we're not reaching stimulus threshold with that kind of kind of work uh, unless you are not uh, not really ex have, have not really been exposed to that type of work in the past so Certainly, we include that in our progression, but we have to move beyond that to higher load and higher velocity and eventually shock-type loading, I think, uh, which, which plyometrics is uh, part of, but you can also do things in the weight room as well or even you know, sprinting or um, different special strength-type exercises. So in, in between them two phases, using that, that basic overload of going down slower to the kind of have the higher end stuff, is there any examples in between there that people could kind of take away and, and have a little think about how they could implement some of that stuff? Sure. So I think if we started with sub-maximal loading, so we, ease, we lower under control with a, something that we could actually concentrically move. So that's below our eccentric maximum. 
it's below our concentric maximum because we can move it so it's clearly below our eccentric maximum. That's a good starting point. Maybe then we progress to closer to our eccentric maximum with a, with a slower time. Uh, excuse me, a, uh, yeah, a, sh a shorter time. So for example, we could move above our concentric max to a load that we couldn't necessarily uh, stand up concentrically with, but we could still control on the eccentric portion. And then we could progress to a very high load where it actually forces us to move through the eccentric phase very quickly. Uh, while we are attempting to stop it. Now, in tangent with that, or kind of along, alongside of that, I would also be working on isometrics. So I think I would, midway through that first phase, I would include some maximal isometrics where I'm just pushing against an immovable object. Uh, I think then we could actually start to do uh, the uh, shock loading where we're incorporating some form of immediate impact and the athlete has to brace really quickly by producing a, uh, what, what I think is a huge isometric contraction of the muscle, lengthening of the tendon, and elastic storage and release in terms of efficient movement. So uh, again, that's Low load, slow is fine, but it's really just the starting point. You know, I see, I love the K-Box. It's one of my favorite tools, uh, the flywheel device. But I see a lot of people even use the K-Box and they say, oh, I'm working eccentric capacity. And meanwhile, you can look at their face and see they're working at about 60% or they're doing 15 reps. That's not eccentric overload. You, to really get eccentric overload for any, anyone other than uh, anyone more advanced than an intermediate athlete, you have to start thinking about moving beyond something that you could move concentrically. Uh, you know, if you want to challenge the person's ab ability to resist yielding, you need to use a load or a time constraint that does that. So where, you mentioned the K-Box there, where would that fit on that continuum between the high end and the... So it could, be, about it, could, it could be anywhere, really, because yeah. the K-Box kind of self-regulates. There's nothing wrong with doing... 12 rep sets on the K-Box. I have a lot of people start there. It's a good introduction. It is, gonna, it is going to load you eccentrically, perhaps more than a mass-based loading system would. But then you need to progress to more advanced methods. So you could do two up, one down on the K-Box, or you could do super maximal concentric. So you make the concentric phase uh, super loaded, and then you release that super load so that it actually reaches well beyond your concentric ability to produce force on the eccentric. And then you'll easily get to that uh, super maximal eccentric overload. You know, there's a handful of ways you can do it. The, the K-Box is really no different than any other tool. The, de the devil is in the details. And if just because you're using the K-Box doesn't mean you're reaching these really high eccentric overloads. You have to use it correctly. It's a tool that allows you to do that and do so very safely. But if you're just going through the motion on there and you know, you're not getting the, the K box space is what I'd call it. Um, <laughs> or you're, you're, you're not getting what you want out of it. Um, or, or it's not what you think out of it. You know, you, I would say 80% of the videos that I see on YouTube and Instagram, people using the K box, they're just kind of going through the motions and you probably get more eccentric overload than you would with an equivalent, uh, mass based system. But if you really want to kill it, you've got to, you got to get after it hard on the concentric maximally. And then ideally you can even progress that out to where you're using some form of external input, whether that's a partner or your own body uh, assisting the concentric to, to load the flywheel to a greater extent and then letting that go. So the flywheel spins you down and really pulls on you very hard during the eccentric phase. So like concentric two legs, eccentric one leg type scenario. Yeah, that would be that'd be a yeah. good good example. Or or doing squats on the K box, but you assist yourself with your arms while driving with the legs on the concentric, and then you release the hands on the eccentric. So you've loaded the flywheel to a greater extent, and then you've taken away the assistance of loading, and then.
just force your body to handle that additional load eccentrically with the legs. There's a handful of ways, strong movement to weak movement, two ups, one, two up, one down, uh, using a super maximal concentric. Those are all kind of more advanced methods, I think, that, that should be incorporated and can actually, some of them can actually be incorporated with mass-based loading. They don't require the K-Box, but the K-Box does make things very safe if you were to incorporate those types of things. And then you're asking a friend to dig you out the floor at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so where does where does in terms of programming this kind of stuff where where does that fit what what makes way for this type of focus to happen that's a good question um i'm always progressing in terms of how i use it it's uh i still wouldn't say that i've exactly figured it out we incorporated early on uh say with my track guys who i have 48 to 50 weeks of the year we incorporate some low level K box work by week four, where we're just doing uh, some some higher rep squats, multi set, and it's just tagged on to our regular weight room loading, kind of as an introduction to this type of stimulus. Gradually, we progress though to where we are incorporating it as a replacement for some of our mass based loading, and we're really getting it after it pretty hard. Uh, I don't I think the K-Box or flywheel loading or eccentric overloaded training in general is an absolute necessity for high-level performance. But I would also say at no point becomes the primary uh, time focus of training. It's just simply not something that you could spend a ton of time on or a ton of volume on because it's so demanding both from the musculoskeletal level, but also from the central level, the brain fatigue would be so high. So, you know, it is, it really is the icing on, on my cake. I think it's absolutely critical to do, but for a variety of reasons, it, I don't foresee it ever becoming the, the total focal point of my training. We're still going to squat all year round. We're still going to sprint all year round, but we're going to incorporate, you know, the flywheel training and progress it out in tangent with the progressions that I have for sprinting or for mass-based loading. Superb. Well, I know we're, we're pretty good over time from what I uh, what I promised you. So, is it, have you done on the on the topics that we've chatted about? I'm sure there's there's tons of articles out there that you've you've written on this on these subjects over the last couple of years. But where's the where's the best place for people to to see uh, to to read your work? There's a couple of websites out there. Is that right? Sure. Yeah, I have uh, written quite a bit on EliteTrack.com. Unfortunately, haven't been on there too much lately, as well as uh, FitForFootball.com. I've got a handful of lectures that are floating around on the web from a variety of different uh, companies, including one that I'm co-owner of, which is Proformance. Uh, my, my partner, James Baker, does a fantastic job of putting a lot of content out there. And I think I have two or three lectures on this very topic on there, uh, basically how to develop strength that carries over to performance and how to develop uh, eccentric capacities specifically. Um, there's some great information out there from guys like Alex Natera as well. And, uh, you know, a couple muscle physiologists, uh, I think Bosch has produced, pr produced a hand handful of papers recently. Uh, and, and I think really the, the key here is that we just continue to recognize that this eccentric work is important, but also that, uh, to really get the benefits we need to load beyond this low load, slow stuff. Uh, that's, that's just pretty remedial stuff in my opinion. And we'll, we'll really quickly not reach stimulus threshold for most athletes. Mm -hmm. Are them two websites yours, Mike? Them they two? are. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay. Yep. Sweet. Okay. Mate. And, and what, in terms of social media, where can people, what's the best place to go? So I'm reasonably active on, on Twitter. Uh, my account is just at Mike Young. Uh, and then quite a bit less so on Instagram, but I, I do try to get on there a decent bit. Uh, there I'm Mike Young, PhD. Uh, normal Mike Young at, on Facebook. Try to post content there as well. Share it across all different platforms. Um, try to put out as much information as I can. I think I've been a product of coaching education and like to pay it forward as much as I can. And Athletic Lab have got a very active Instagram account as, as well. Yeah, that's right. So Athletic Lab is my uh, 
Sport Performance Training Center. They're probably more active, I would actually say, than, than I am in terms of uh, actual training information on my Instagram account. They put out a lot of really good stuff, a lot of which I'm involved with, a lot of Q&A type of things, a lot of real-world examples, a lot of behind-the-scenes looks at how we train some of our elite athletes and even some of our uh, gen-pop athletes as well. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for your time, Mike. Really appreciate you giving up uh, some of your afternoon to have a little chat. And sorry it's taken five years to get you back on. It's an absolute <laughs> pleasure to talk to you again. <laughs> no problem. Thank you, Rob. Okay, mate. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Massive thanks to Mike for giving up his time for a second time five years too late for a part two. Also, big thanks to First Beat, Eccentric, Black Box Fitness and Val Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So I've got some fantastic guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. I know I say it all the time, but seriously, over the next couple of weeks, we've got some serious big hitters dropping some really great information uh, on the podcast so make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player so now on itunes stitcher um spotify yeah everywhere you can get podcasts the pacey performance podcast will be so thank you very much for all your support and i will chat to you soon